Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tech Exchange. I'm your host, Jane Johnson. I'm joined today by my co-hosts and co contributors, Mr. Corey Moss, Johnny Moda, Krista Bender. Today, we'll be talking tech trends and video with our special guest, Sean Brown, who's the Senior Vice President at Sonic Foundry. But first, here's Krista with a word from our sponsor. We want to say a special thank you to Ingram Micro for sponsoring Tech Exchange. Visit IngramMicro.com to find out how they can help you with your AV and IT needs. IngramMicro.com. Nicely done. All right, so let's kick off our Tech in the News segment. We're going to start with Johnny. Johnny, what's going on in your world? Um, in my world, there's lots of things going on, but specifically in this last week, Yamaha has announced uh, something that they previously had, I think, in the early 90s. And I, the only I can compare it to is Sonos, a, a household name, if you will, that pretty much everyone would know nowadays. When you say the name Sonos, you think some sort of uh, distributed audio wireless, quote-unquote, wireless system. Yamaha is announcing a music cast with roughly 20 devices, wireless speakers, with a little, a little bit different than uh, Sonos. It's supporting higher resolution audio formats like FLAC and ALAC and Apple lossless, things like that. The other thing I would compare that to is another company who are called Blue Sound, which is a very similar, uh, almost identical product offering with the exception of their nodes can offer um, a music server built in so you can load CDs, you know, those old discs that most people probably use as coasters nowadays. Yeah. So you can load those in there and then keep the files locally, which I think is great because I still actually love CD format, uh, much like vinyl and weird. I like the physical format uh, to place in the thing. It's just a different experience when listening to music versus this, the very instant now type of thing. Um, I think that they're doing this to be, you know, like Sonos, but before them, Denon has, or Denon, depending where you are in the world and say it, uh, has their system called Teos, very similar uh, system. And I think lots of people are trying to be the next Sonos. And I will now compare Sonos as being in the realm of this type of market or product offering, um, an Apple-esque type of company is where people are trying to be much like them, uh, where their system really just works. It's very simple. And people ask for it by name because it, because because of those reasons. Um, and I think um, we might see many, many more people continue to be or want to be the next Sonos. Um, whether or not they will be is kind of undetermined. Uh, so is it on your Christmas list? Uh, mine, no. <laughs> you know, I just got the Amazon Echo, which is now suiting all of my music purposes. Are you I, ha I haven't used it yet, and we had this discussion previously, I think maybe the first show, like prior to recording. I need to know... Is it everything that you've ever dreamt of? Well, it does allow me to talk to someone other than my cats. I can talk uh, to Alexa. But and There's but, actually quite a range of voice commands that it will respond to, and if I go download it, you can actually get it to respond to a few more. Ah, But soon, uh, Google might acquire them, and they might be the next A in Alphabet, and uh, you might have that ability with their robots, so you could talk to your cats, possibly, from the other room, of course. See where tech is taking us. All right. Anyone else uh, um, excited about this new music offering? Well, no. And I read in the article, uh, and a lot of times with these things, they talk about all about the app. And it does say here, giving it that Yamaha has put serious thought into the app design to make it highly graphic, intuitive to use. 
Uh, I honestly would think anybody doing such a thing would put a lot of serious thought into the app and design. But Johnny, what's your thought on that? Uh, I, again, I haven't used it yet, but the images, um, the graphic, the GUI, if you will, graphic user interface uh, that I that I saw from Yama was a very very clean. It was uh, image based. It almost looks like you could go, and I didn't get that far into it. You can go and take the images yourself, so that you can identify the room. Or Savant control system in, in our industry had a very similar concept with their control system. So where you would use an iPad most likely to control a room or a house or a building from room to room, you would go around or someone or pay someone to take images of your room in a 360 format or different images. And then you would click on the light and obviously that would turn the light on. Then the, the next uh, step of logic would be that light on, on the iPad or control system, which I thought was very cool and very good because obviously image based, um, is very intuitive in that it, there's no language barrier. What you see is what you get. Oh, very good. All right, Sean, you want to weigh in on this? What do you think? I'm just excited about it. And I was wondering what he thought about the role of higher quality music formats being carried. Are they going to swap people's network? Do people want them? Or is it going to be increasing that trend of people wanting high density music? I think that higher quality music is something I personally have been into, but it, I think it's a very niche market. Uh, here's why, right? Yes, it'll, it's going to really drive someone's network that maybe isn't ready for it or bogged down. Everyone is, you know, streaming lower res files, um, Pandora, Spotify, Apple music, well, whatever your flavor is, they're all typically lower quality. The one that I use currently is Tidal which is a much higher quality format, like a CD format, if you will. You and me uh, and Beyonce, the only people who have accounts. Exactly, all three of us. Maybe JC, but I'm not even sure if he uses it. He just may own the company. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if, if anything, this will just add another attraction, attraction to people maybe getting a taste of higher quality resolution. I don't think it's going to bring it to the masses, but again, it might just bring awareness like some of the other higher res quality players, just like everyone either has an iPhone or Android phone, it's most like, or a Windows phone, right? Nobody has Blackberry anymore, come on. Um, most likely has a, an Apple device, is my guess. A, a large percentage of the population, and that's great. But they typically don't support higher resolution audio files. So to get something like that, you have a much bulkier handheld device um, let's go back to the Walkman days or the CD player days, uh, things that I would say maybe everyone in this chat had at one point in their life. But it's a, it's a big, bulky device. And so in a digital format, you can only have so many files, but the quality is better. So again, me, Sean, and Beyonce may be the only people having those. I have a couple friends that have them, but again, it, it's, a, it's a large deterrent to have a, a big, bulky device and carry that around with you because... Everyone's on the go, maybe. I just want my phone. My phone can do that. Maybe it doesn't support those files. But there are other things out there that do support these files. But again, it's slow rollout and everyone doing it like uh, Neil Young with his Pono player, which is a weird name that looks like uh, a Toblerone, if you will. It is a triangle-based bar of music player that supports high-res audio. And it doesn't necessarily the greatest sounding device, but... If anything, it is bringing awareness to higher resolution audio. And very soon, 
I feel that Apple, and I don't know how soon, but they, ha they currently have the, the capability to support higher res audio file formats via their, whether that's uh, Beats Music or, or iTunes, which I don't think anyone really uses anymore because of Beats. But they do have the capability to support that music. And once they flip the quote-unquote switch, that will bring that to the masses because everybody tends to love Apple just because they're Apple. <laughs> Well, and speaking of Apple, I think Krista has some, some Apple-related news to share. I do. I was surprised to hear, well, I don't know why I was surprised, um, but I heard yesterday that um, a former engineer from Tesla has decided to join the Apple team. Um, and when Jamie was asked why he went over to Apple. He just said he's simply working on special teams project right now. So it's interesting to see that um, Apple has hired a pretty steady stream of people that have similar experience. Um, they've hired Megan McLean, who was a Volkswagen engineer, and she had experience with automated driving. Um, they hired a graduate researcher who came from Carnegie Mellon, um, they've hired some um, many people that have computer vision software like related to driving assistance systems um, and they're just acquiring all these people and so far Apple's sort of keeping it hush-hush um, as to why so of course people are speculating whether they're gonna you know be a part of the um, driverless car um, scenario just you know just like everybody else's as we know um, Alphabet that now, you know, they're the now the new holding company for Google. They've been experimenting with their own driverless car for a while. So it's it's kind of interesting to, to see this. I think it's kind of neat. I, I'm kind of torn. I like it and I, not that I don't like it, but it's kind of weird to me because it's kind of cool because it's like minority report. You can get into your own car and, you know, have your own car and take you and you don't have to worry about it. You can, you know, be reading or texting or doing whatever you want to do and get to where you want to go. But we also have other things like that in place now called buses and trains. While it's not your own personal vehicle, you know, I, in my mind, I'm like, well, why don't we just improve our mass transit system instead of having multiple vehicles on the road? So. Ooh, I like that, a plug for mass transit. Of course, you, <laughs> yeah. you do live in a big city where you have well-thought-out, well-designed public transportation. I don't. Oh, you don't? No. <laughs> we, we now, actually, where I live now, um, we do have a bus route, but it only runs Monday through Friday, and it ends by 6 p.m., so it's primarily for commuters for work. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, uh, well, that would take me into the, the closest city, which is like, you know, 10 minutes down the road. Um, so it doesn't actually serve my purposes because I don't work in that city, but... Um, I was very excited that we got the bus route, but because I think that I, I am a big proponent for mass transportation. I mean, the, the many times I've traveled overseas, I very rarely would rent a car. I mean, I did on my previous trip, but I usually would go and be like, all right, let's find the train schedule. Let's hop on a train or let's get on the bus because we just have to go over to the next town over. Like to me, that's just easy. It's usually cheaper to, to do that kind of thing. Um, and I'm just adventurous. I like talking to new people. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now, the prospect of driverless cars is a little terrifying for me as well. So I think I could get on board with you in saying that maybe uh, public transportation investment would be a good thing. Yay. Uh, two people agree. <laughs> I, I think public transportation is a great thing, too. Where I live, it's horrible. 
unless you get to like San Francisco, the Muni runs like every 10 minutes and it costs like a buck and you can do transfers pretty much all day long. It's awesome. Up here where I live in the wine country, it's, it's similar to Krista. Although we do have weekends, they, but they only run every hour and they to catch like, because I drive an hour plus distance to get to work to get to where I need to go. Isn't going to happen in a day basically. And if I miss that bus, and it's a whole nother hour. And on the weekends, it's every two hours. So things are a nightmare. It's not that great. It's really inconvenient. The train, if I want to hop on one. What are trains? They don't have trains anymore. What the heck? Uh, there are Caltrain, though. But that's way past the city. Um, I like the idea of the driverless car, the Apple thing. I was really hoping that Apple would acquire Tesla. But with the way that um, Elon Musk is going, he's basically the modern modern day Nikola Tesla or AKA electric Jesus. I think that, um, you know, he's got his super bullet train, which I think is brilliant coming eventually. Um, you're willing to get locked up in that thing and shot across the country just to say I did it. (laughs) Right. I'm going to hop in that thing and hopefully it sends me to the sky or something like that and yell to the cloud (laughs) on your Uh, last ride ever uh, in transportation, Johnny, do yell to the cloud. I'll periscope it so everyone can watch me die at at like high velocity speeds across the United States. It'll probably end up going the ocean in a fiery, fiery, (laughs) but not only that, he's got the battery for the home, which I think is going to be brilliant for most homes and or powering smart home innovation for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is why I, I think maybe Apple may not buy him because he doesn't need Apple. I don't think. Uh, the other thing is I'm hoping that maybe that Nikola Tesla bullet tube sends us to space. We end up in Mars and we all just drive around in the local transit there. Johnny Cabs. Nice. I'm thinking of a new show for all of this. <laughs> Last just lifetime experiences in your bucket list. Um, no, actually, what I have to say about this is, you know, th- this is Apple versus Google as usual. Uh, Google has had their driverless car project for, for a while now. Um, I, I'm not going to buy into this. I don't want to buy into this. Uh, you know, all I see it is we're going to do the one-up thing here and I don't subscribe to it at all. I really don't. Google started this. Google's program has been around for a while. Google is the program that I look at as the serious one. And, um, you know, and that's the one I'm personally, I'm going to follow. Uh, this one doesn't mean a lot to me. You know, Apple makes, uh, you know, iPods, iPads, iMacs, i the iCar. Oh, next is iCar. Wonderful. I All everything, right. man. Well, it's yeah, it's, it's the i everything. So you'll be dry. You'll be in a driverless iCar soon. Not me, thank you. I just think it's going to be a long time before we see this if it really becomes a real, real thing. Because you kind of then you have to sort of then go with a standard. Because I can't imagine you have driverless cars out there, and then you have human beings driving cars there's going to be different scenarios with that. Like the cars are, are going to have a ton of sensors and they're probably going to be super sensitive, keep certain distances. And, you know, as humans, we don't always necessarily do that. Not, you know, we may not ever get in a car accident, but we may end up getting really close to another car. So then if we get really close somehow to a driverless car, does that mess things up? Does the driverless car abort, you know, and then like doesn't know what to do and shut down. Um, so I'm kind of just interested to see it. Like I don't, I, I enjoy driving as I like, that's a favorite thing of mine. I like getting behind a car and especially if it's got some, you know, 
rabbits under the engine that can make it go. Like I, I put my foot down on the gas and just like burning around and I love that. And so I would never want to lose that. But you know well, what to talk about real quick, Krista, is the fact that people who uh, can't necessarily drive, um, you know, people who are older, let's say people who, uh, you know, again, there are reasons why they can't. And this is pretty much what I see a driverless car made for. Or, you know, and, and you know, we were talking to Joel uh, last week, Johnny, and talking about the driverless cars. I think he was talking about Vegas and what great advantage that was. Um, you know, but on the whole, uh, yeah, I love to drive. I don't want to be in a driverless car. I, I think it's a, hey, Johnny, it's a thing. You know, that, it, it definitely is a thing. What about this? Going back to, to Chris's thought, what if it was driverless public transportation for the folks that can't get around? right where i live there are little buses for the elderly community because they have stuff to do and they can't drive anymore you know they just for whatever reason they just they don't they can't but there are services in place where they can meet up and hop on board and get around to do their daily activities and get home safely driverless metro mobility yeah i'd be game yeah. for that i'm i'm okay with that but again, then we all heard about the hacker story on the driverless cars recently. So obviously those cars That's live right. on a network, which I'll probably call Skynet, and then it'll become self-aware we're all going to die. <laughs> That's two Arnold Schwarzenegger references. I'm going to start calling this minutes. Techpocalypse Now. This is just, cool. just wait, Sean. There will be much more before we're done. Yeah. Um, no, actually, you're right. The security factor, you know, is anybody, does anybody take that into account? And some do, but you always have to consider the security factor to all of this. And uh, before you get behind, or not behind the wheel, but before you get in one of these things, let's make sure that there's not somebody sitting there with a laptop and a smartphone uh, ready to drive this thing into a ditch like they did with the Jeep Cherokee. Um, you know, so uh, there, there's, of course, considerations for that. But, you know, hey, hey, Apple, you know, this is all great. This is fantastic. Um, you know, uh, honestly, it is. This is interesting that they're bringing Tesla pre people on now. And, hey, Apple has all the money in the world to bring all the people in the world they want to bring into this thing yeah. right now. But, uh, you know, of course, like I said, I like my little iPod. I, you know, <laughs> I can't live without it. Uh, hey, Apple, would you focus on what you really do at this point? I mean, yeah. I can't well, say anything more than that. Bring in security experts, too, I would recommend. Well, maybe maybe we can move from uh, Apple's I everything plan to our other favorite I of everything <laughs> and move to the uh, Internet of Things that Corey has. I like that, the eye of everything. <laughs> um, actually, that is one of them, is the uh, eye of everything. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that uh, now favorite subject in the environment, IoT. Uh, or I think I'm going to create a show, IoT, IOE, IOX, whatever you want. Um, but, yeah, you had sent me, uh, as a matter of fact, Jane, McKinsey Quarterly, an executive's guide to the Internet of Things, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, it actually states the rate of adoption is accelerating, and it points out six things you need to know. So um, it goes through here, and I even found an article that I like to reference as well, uh, but it talks about how opportunities beckon, beckon and 
how IoT's impact is already extending beyond its early, most visible applications. And where it talks about much greater potential remains to be tapped, which I fully believe, and I know many do as well. Um, what we saw and heard at Infocom was a surface scratch, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, as a matter of fact, we heard about things like drone and all, which I don't know what that gives us going forward. Uh, I don't even think it's material personally, although you know, drone talk itself as a separate conversation is. But where it talks about creating B2B value globally, um, you know, that's, of course, something that we have to really pay attention to. And the numbers that go with it, uh, you know, numbers such as uh, creating as much as $11.1 trillion a year globally in economic value in, as they say, nine different types of physical settings, uh, nearly $5 billion generated almost, ex almost exclusively in B2B settings, talking about factories, uh, agriculture, healthcare, mining oil and gas, construction, uh, and more. And so we're, you know, where we talk about IoT, let's say, in smart home and all, these are all the consider considerations in the B2B realm uh, where now you discuss IoT. Again, I don't know that anything we heard before, at least here in the AV environment, but these are the considerations to consider. Uh, and, you know, like I said, that's why I liked what you had sent me here. It talks about optimizing operations, uh, investing in IoT hardware from embedded sensor, sensors embedded in manufacturing equipment, uh, projects, products to el electronically tag items along supply chain. Uh, so again, we talk about sensors and sensor data. Uh, Sean, you know, you talk about big data and, you know, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> this even talks about self-driving vehicles. Uh, so, you know, these are the opportunities. There are many opportunities in IoT that we can expand upon. And I tell you what, when you talk about putting together panels and all, I think you can focus on such things in panel discussions as well as discussion to security as we've talked about, which could be a fully separate panel discussion to this um, because that's, of course, important. Uh, but we talk about innovation, creating innovative business models, uh, yet the one of the last parts of this talks about the challenges that remain. And of course, you, we talk about overcoming interoperability and uh, what they're saying is analytics hurdles. And finally, of course, security. So that's why I say if we talk about putting together panels and all, um, interoperability, which they may have touched on, security, uh, these are things that you can put a real focus to in those types of discussions. So I think you can break this into layers, uh, just as is uh, gone over in this overview in this executive's guide to the Internet of Things from McKinsey Quarterly. So in finding this article, and it's from uh, the New York Times bits section, Internet of Things, talks about the Internet of Things has vast economic potential, McKinsey report says... So focusing on McKinsey, uh, a very good article here, a short article, 
um, which I think is a good read. So for anybody out there who uh, wants to read it, it's the McKinsey Quarterly, an executive's guide to the Internet of Things, and a short article uh, from June in Bits in the New York Times, the Internet of Things has vast economic potential, McKinsey Report says. So uh, that's what I have. Yeah, it was a terrific, right, a terrific article and a really good perspective. Maybe put the link in the write-up of this uh, podcast because it was, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, really good stuff. So. Yeah, no, I will. I'll put the link in for everybody to see. And, uh, and Sean, you know, we're going to talk about some of the things that were talked about here. But I, I've got to tell you, uh, there's major discussions to be had going forward. And hopefully we're able to put such things together. I couldn't agree with you more. And from my perspective, the IoT article is a great first read if you have just heard it as a buzzword out there. But I think you pointed out the most important thing to me about it, which is we think we have security issues now, hacking, you know, disruption. Oh my gracious, the IoT trend and the demands that are absolutely going to be there as evidenced in the report mean that that's going to be the thing that has to be gotten right first. And the second is, is that all of those applications that you touched on, Carrie, require collaboration among more than just one company. This isn't just something one company puts up in the enterprise. All of the interesting collaborations like, oh, now we're going to know where everything is in our supply chain. Now we're going to know where all of the products we sold are operating and be able to support them. It requires collaboration across layers of manufacturer, customer, uh, distributor, all that stuff that you mentioned, well, that I don't need to repeat. So security and collaboration of a structure and rules and policy, like nothing we did when the internet was being born or when smartphone and cell phone technology were being born for the internet of things to work better than it does and achieve its potential. It's going to need those two things, collaboration and security. And you hit it well. Excellent. Good. Well, this is perfect. We're going to move into our deeper dive with Sean Brown. So I will um, give you a little bit more background. He is the senior VP at Sonic Foundry, and he has over 23 years of product management and education business development experience. So very, very deep experience. And I heard, Sean, you introduce yourself on one of your webcasts. And you said you were like the Forrest Gump because you've been at kind of the starting place of so many uh, important business moments. And I would love it if you could pick it up from there and explain why you used that reference. Oh, my gracious. Well, um, one, I'm old enough that those references all make sense to me, at least. But then we were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger, so I don't feel bad anymore that I have old movie references. The second is that Forrest Gump didn't cause all of the things in the movie that he was present at. He was just present at it. Uh, but I have had the benefit in working at IBM and at Apple and at Oracle, and then now um, at Sonic Foundry for the last 13 years of being present at what I think are a few key moments, both that were successful and some that were infamously not. Like um, I got to show the first Newton prototype uh, ever uh, built. It was built out of balsa wood, as many of Apple's products were at the time to the president of uh, the University of Iowa in a, in, a, in a Mexican restaurant of all places, you know, but he wanted to see it so bad before we did the presentation the next day. And they told me one thing, don't, don't 
unplug it and let it run on batteries, but you could just leave it plugged into the wall. And of course you wanted to see it, I did it. It worked, it was a fabulous moment, even if though it was a Newton. And it promptly started to smoke. So I had to take it to the bathroom and things like that. So these are the kind of things that if you're a real deep nerd, they're Forrest Gump-like famous moments that I was present for uh, in my career. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I wanted to start the conversation with something that you talk about a lot, which is different categories of video. You talk about what most of us are very familiar with, universal video, those historic events, Super Bowls, you know, moments of uh, when presidents are speaking, or you talk a lot about when President Kennedy was shot and how that was captured on video, and everyone knew about it within 24 hours. Then there's also the personal video, the stuff that we all take of our families, our cats, and we put out on YouTube. Then you start talking about organizational video, and that's kind of a, a new concept for a lot of people. So I, I wanted to get you talking about organizational video and why thinking about video that way is really important. Well, the reason it's important to us, and first of all, I'm honored that you've watched my cat videos on YouTube, which are very personal. Uh, but what we at Sonic Foundry, where we worry about enterprise video and all, of, all the companies in, in this area of AV, you know, a lot of times, if you are a broadcast expert that continues to be what we call universal video, all of the art and form of capturing an Olympics and a Super Bowl and 24 hour news and you know holographic stuff to talk to Wolf Blitzer. And then personal video has been with us from the time it was film all the way to you know everybody using their smartphone and doing a great job of documenting their children's lives, their personal moments, their cats and all that. What we've been focused on is that we think that organizational video or the potential, the opportunity to create it is something that's happening really fast. Um, that sometimes it gets overlooked because um, when you think of a corporation or a higher education institution, you think of video, you think of, of, of well, if we're gonna video something, let's get a script and a producer and an outside company and very important, impressive technology and make a video set, a commercial, a XYZ. Um, organizational video is the term that we're just using to describe the reality that there's been an explosion of voicemail-like, you know, just technology-made instant video, including the stuff from my company. So in the, specifically I'm referring to like in higher education, maybe a lot of you are younger than me, um, but uh, not present at all in my school was anybody recording a class other than satellite uplink, you know, or something like that, or maybe two-way video conferencing, just the end of it. But now, um, at a significant number of schools, every single classroom is a lecture capture studio. That means the video studio. There's somebody's uh, devices and software systems, sometimes mine, sometimes others, that are recording the teacher in, you know, Cinema Veritas, you know, it's like, like as it happens. So if they cough, if they go off and ramble, if they're on point, it, every moment is recorded and used and consumed by thousands and thousands of people. That's organizational video. That's what we mean. And it brings in a set of different things that still require our expertise. And I mean, our, our, all of our, those who had listened to this great show, expertise you know just be the production value is obviously lower but the principles that we have developed 
as an industry still apply. So you see a lot of bad video. You see a lot of um, bad lighting principles, uh, just things where our advice and things that we've learned can impact and make it more valuable. So that's what I mean when I talk about organizational video. And it extends to corporate, like people are recording their video conferences. It's becoming easier to do that. People are recording interaction with Zoom, with GoToMeeting, with Citrix WebEx. They're suddenly just like, oh, let's hit record. Well, let's use video. And all those video assets are now manageable, distributable. And that's what I mean. So organizational video. How does that impact though the, the future of communication? Because you seem to make a link between that point. Well, we believe that, you know, based on the data that we've collected and, you know, frankly, our success with, with helping people think of the things in this way, um, we think that we're seeing a lot of programs that would have been more formal I'm, if you, if you are a corporation, I'll use a corporate example. Um, uh, I was in a cereal commercial when I was a little boy at, with General Mills for Cheerios, you know, it's 1976, good Lord. And what is that? It's a company, it's an organization. They're making a video, but what's their goal? For it to be universal. They're gonna pay for it to be universal. They want everyone to see it and know that there's stickers in the box for 1976 for the bicentennial. Whereas, and, and, and that was like 100%, not that commercial, but you know, what's video for that company, that serial company? It's universal videos being made in a very professional way. Now, if you go to that same company, which I've had the, the privilege to do with this technology now, a, a thousand years later, the majority of the video that they're concerned with is organizational video, period. They're like trying to keep a, a global multinational connected. They're trying to have the all hands meeting be seen by everyone. Um, they're trying to have the all hands meeting of the CEO be time shifted. They're trying to have people who are retiring who know how to do whatever a cereal company has knowledge to do, you know, the formulas, the this, the Cocoa Puffs recipe, whatever, to be able to have that knowledge preserved and not have that person have to become a video producer to do it. So I think it's important to start thinking about the wealth of information that is available inside an organization that is best served if it's transformed to video. Um, and a lot of our customers agree with that type of thinking. It kind of flips it on its head for them. So they start to think, so wherever somebody's taking the time to create a PowerPoint presentation, lug a laptop or something in, pull a projector and go to a room that's a presentation environment, could we be recording this in two channels or all the channels that are necessary to capture it? And thus make an artifact that, that's useful and distributed on you know, on, on the internet. And the reason education is so important is they're like, yeah, got it, need it, have wanted it, let's go. And in corporations, they're like, interesting, but comes with a raft of problems. That's fatter, bigger data that needs to be moved across our network. Uh, like Carrie has said so well, security issues, like, you know, we know our meetings are private, we can see who's in the room. If we make it digital, who, we need to know who can see it. We need to know who has seen it, um, the efficacy of it, uh, analytics, things like that. So that's what I mean. Yeah, and, and that is exactly the, the, the challenge it seems that corporations have. 
It's easy now to create video. Bingo. But how do you manage it? Because big data is already a massive problem. There's so much information out there that's not getting used. We have no insider visibility from it. We're paying so much money to store it. So video is just another unstructured data type. That's Except right. now you are saying it's you can't actually index it. Well, you know, it's funny as I think wealth of data can be looked at two ways. Wealth of data is something that can be harnessed for, you know, for good purposes. And then wealth of data could be so much data that it just explodes and crowds the pipe and everything else. It can be a bad thing. Oh, yeah. I think it could be looked at both ways. But, you know, in looking at statement, uh, even on the website, Sean, where you know, and, and looking at the campus uh, where video consumption, as it says, grows unabated uh, and talking about desktop mobile video creation combined with room capture, uh, it shows the accelerated growth and, and how universities are now seeking best ways to, as it says, move mountains of unmanaged campus video into secure environments. So I think you've just touched on a lot of this right now. I appreciate that. And I, I, first, I agree with you. And second, when you're talking about structured and unstructured data, when Jane was like, um, it, it's a problem that um, is unsolved, but, you know, my and many other companies are trying to solve it, which is that when there's an email explosion, and like Carrie said, you know, I could be here going email, it's the future and it's gonna be great. We've lived through that. We all know that we get more email than we can possibly read. It's, 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 it's hard to say. We know it made us more efficient, but we know that it was with pain. Um, and Corey, I say to you that we have tools that are easy to use because it's text. But video, where I'm over here going video is great, turn it into video, make, the, make more video. Not only is it big, not only is it hard to secure, not only does it take up a lot of room to store or move, but it's inscrutable. It's, you have a, a four hour recording and someone has to do a lot of work to be able to break it down and say what happened in it. And I'm, we're fully aware of that. That's part of the challenge that you bring, bring up. Part of the challenge that you bring up is trying to come up with technologies that will create metadata automatically versus the way that it has been done in the past. The company that I work for was born out of a research project that literally was about making speech to text indexing and optical character recognition and face recognition to try to categorize video in a world where all of the video had been logged manually. If you didn't go through and watch every minute of it, like the television archive at Vanderbilt, where somebody sits down every day back 20, 30 years ago, for 20 or 30 years, watched all three networks, news, nightly news broadcast, and literally typed out subject headings by the minute, such that it could be part of a research body. Well, what's wonderful in 2015 is these systems inherently will use everything you've ever heard of at their disposal from every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie you've ever seen. Uh, to try to analyze it. So if, for example, our system scans every keyframe in the video for legible text. So if you've used a document camera or, you know, someone's held up a sign or whatever, if it's legible, we're going to be able to mark the time and have that in the database so it, it responds to search hits. Sounds simple, sounds obvious, but it's invaluable to 
the folks who are want the advantage of video, the ease of moving knowledge into that form, yet still don't want to give up what we have in, in text. So I don't know if that, if that gets on point, but you definitely have pointed out the biggest problems with this trend, which is, is it useful? Is it useful data? And to make it useful data, you have to have a strategy for creating metadata about it. Yeah, because if, if you talk about capturing those business meetings that happen in huddle rooms, for example, which I think you do in one of your webinars, I mean, there's so much good information that's shared, and if you could capture it, great, but if nobody can search it and access it, then why capture it? Exactly. The, to, the more informal, the, the trend is, for those who have used this stuff and are moving ahead, are they're like, great, thank you for handling our all-hands meetings. Thank you for creating a technology and a workflow that works great in our auditoriums, maybe our classrooms. Well, those are structured moments, formal moments. We're good at that already. Everybody's getting pretty good at that. But then the next thing want, they want, like you said, is huddle rooms. Hey, we just got together. We didn't know we were going to get together. At best, we can hit record. Well, it gets a lot harder. And like you said, if you don't have the metadata to be able to find it later, it's, it's literally useless. It's worse than useless because it's taking up space. Uh, and it was an expense to put in there. And that's the other thing that um, right now I'd say the state of play is that most organizations feel that these type of systems are worth the investment um, for their formal presentation environments. They want it in their less formal environments like huddle rooms, but the price is, is yeah. too high for it, for the investment. And so we're working hard to do that. The introduction of different technologies from Microsoft and competition is, is welcome. And, you know, uh, all sorts of frenemy behavior happening to try to get the cost of these things down. But like you said, it, without indexing, without indexability and searchability, the data will be useless and it gets harder the more informal you go. But that's what excites us and that's what we're, we're, we're trying to do and make sure we think it's here to stay. Um, just look at YouTube alone. It didn't, if you're, I have a 21 year old daughter, if it's not on YouTube, it didn't happen, you know? And it, it, the people want to consume data in this modality as well. But that's why I love the industry that's listening, you know, to this show. It's at the center of helping people make it work. Uh, because all those original principles that we've learned about communication in general and about video communication specifically, eventually translate to these different venues. We just have to right size our, our advice. Yeah, and I'm excited to, to see how much you guys have written about big data because it's not something I see covered in the AV industry very often. It's always talked about in the IT circles because it is so critical to them. So I wanted to get your perspective on what you think AV integrators should know about big data. How does that impact their role? Is Are there things they could be doing to better serve their customers? Are there opportunities that they could get involved in. Yeah, and I just want to mirror that thought, Jane, is that you're right. Uh, I, was at, I was actually at a Crestron partner meeting two years ago at Infocom where they were talking about big data there. And I thought, okay, this is great. It's a launch of discussion on big data. And I've not heard anything really since. And you're right, in the IT industry or, or where you talk about big data itself. Uh, and then when I saw what was sent, Sean, in the materials about big data, I said, oh, this is great. 
I definitely want to see this. So, yeah, along those lines, Jane, uh, Sean, really, just uh, yeah, tell everybody. Well, I, and I appreciate that, Corey. And I, we, we as a company, um, you know, are on the blend, that, you know, between IT and AV. You know, if you're going to make an IT product that, that moves around video and stuff, you're just, you have to have a foot in both worlds. So in the IT world, just like uh, was said, big data is, it's a sexy topic to, in the IT world, but really kind of like you were talking about internet of things. If you have all of these systems out there with a plethora of information about many, many, many different small transactions that are going on, big data is the meta of the meta. It is can, what, what can we see and learn from all of this data that we're tracking? And so, you know, IBM commercials on the Super Bowl Sunday and all this, big data, big data. But when you move into the audiovisual side of the convergence, I'll speak as a, for, as a converted or reformed IT person into AV. We have had the demands of the kind of insights that are required of big data long before the IT side did. When you look at the things that we're expected to know about utilization of a variety of different products that aren't related to each other, uh, you know, the light bulb in the projector and the projector itself and how long it was on and who did it and who didn't and the the forced marriage between uh, audiovisual integrators and HVAC, you know, like like room control, everything that we, well, the, the room control controls it so the things have to go together. All along the way, the discipline of being able to tell the executives that you support why and who and what has been a burden that's been on the AV industry that I'm, that I'm sympathetic, to, sympathetic to. So big data to me is just first and foremost, starting to take all of the smart information that we have and bubble it up into systems where insights can be made. Uh, so I say that we're ahead of the curve in audiovisual integration based on the experience we have. Don't let the IT people, because they gave it a fancy name, um, make you feel like it's new to you. But the fact of the matter is, is that the expectations that have been put on our industry to be able to extrapolate analytics about utilization to be able to have creative ideas about um, trends instantly without having to wait for a magazine or a report or something to come out about it is critical in all aspects of any sort of technology that serves. So the big data that we see is, of course, because we're video wonks, videots, whatever you want to call us, is about the utilization of the consumption of the video. And so we can tell everything like Big Brother about any video that's in our system about, you know, who watched it, uh, who watched the whole system in the aggregate. In a particular program, did people fast forward, you know, what percentage of the people have watched any particular subsecond of it? And I won't go on and on, but all those sorts of, of intense analytics and observations and data. And being able to bubble that up in a GUI that's useful uh, is very important to our clientele because just like a television studio wants ratings and wants to know and you pay Nielsen and there's a box and nobody knows how it works. When you're doing organizational video, they expect huge high definition analytics that let them know how things are working to have insights 
to know things like you have faculty members who go back and get these reports and they say, wow, people are, it's a hot spot in the middle of my lecture. It must mean people are confused. Let me go back and look at that same moment in time and figure out if I can stretch it out or, or is it something that, you know, things like that. Sorry to use that boring example, but that's, that's what big data means in video in particular. But I love to tell everyone in the audiovisual industry that you've been here and done that longer than IT has been forced to do that because IT was something that was self-fulfilling. Like only the people in IT understood what they built. Whereas in audiovisual, um, as I see it, it's something that everyone has been able to see the result. Everyone's always wanted to know who's using this thing, who's using this room, how are they using it? Can we turn it off at this time and all that stuff and room view and room manager and everything else a trend of popping up big data has been in the industry a long time. And, you know, I think everybody should see your big data um, video. I think it's a really, really good watch.